When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is sponsored by Kaplan Medical. If you head over to captest.com and use the offer code ITB15, you can get 15% off any Kaplan Medical product. And importantly, for AMA members, you can combine this discount with your AMA membership for a total of 40% off. So that is a pretty sweet deal. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. All right, welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast. I am Patrick Beeman, your host. This is part two of our discussion with Chris Semino, Chief Medical Officer and Vice President of Kaplan Medical. If you haven't listened to part one yet from last time, you should definitely do so. In this two-part episode, we are getting really deeply into the mind of a question writer. And specifically for this one, we discuss a little bit more about Dr. Semino's own background and dive more deeply into the process of multiple choice question and exam creation. You can find Dr. Semino's practical advice on exam strategy and test taking in the Kaplan test prep minutes, which we are featuring in our study smarter series for the USMLE step one and Comlex level one over on a separate ITB channel. Just search your favorite podcatcher or check the show notes of this page to find that content. And that segment, which occurs in the first half of the episode, is really applicable to all levels of medical education, whether you are a third or fourth year medical student or a resident perhaps who hasn't yet taken step three. So check that out, the Inside the Board's Study Smarter series for the USMLE Step 1 and Comlex Level 1. So without further ado, here's the second part of our conversation with Dr. Semino. Well, on, on that note, let's actually talk a little bit about about you and your experience. Um, so you went to medical school at uh, Einstein, correct? No, no, I I, um, I was a professor at Einstein. Uh, I went to medical school at uh, State University of New uh, York, soon. Stony Brook. Okay. And then did an IM fellowship, or excuse me, internship, then a residency in neurology um, right. at Einstein. Right. And then followed that up with a fellowship in uh, medical informatics Correct. Uh, at Mass Gen. Then you went on to Harvard, uh, taught a little bit there. That was that was more of a way station while I looked for ways to move back to New York because ah, okay. all of my family was and my wife's family were in New York. So okay. uh, the guy I did the fellowship with graciously said, well, you can keep working for me as long as you like. Okay. Uh, <laughs> even though we knew I was I was looking to move. All right. During your medical school, uh, 
years. What what was the licensure um, kind of situation with respect to USMLE? So three steps. So this is there were three steps. There was no clinical skills. And before everyone starts cheering and saying, "Oh, that's great," um, step one was a two day exam, mm-hmm. uh, seven hours each day. And in those days, there was no prometric. Um, the medical schools were the testing centers, sure. and so. Uh, we would sit in that lecture hall for two days straight. And I'll tell you, by the time we got to the last module, I didn't care whether I got the answers right anymore. It was just like, oh, I just want to get all these questions answered and get out of here. Um, it, it was really, really kind of grueling. And um, But on the other hand, um, Stony Brook uh, at that time, and I think still is uh, pass-fail school in the first in the first two years, uh, and so the score wasn't as important, and it wasn't as important in terms of residency. So there was sort of a pressure to, you know, make sure you pass, um, but not the anxiety-provoking kind of thing we see now where the number you get on the exam seems to determine whether you're going to get an interview even uh, for residency. Yeah. Um, and that's really an unfortunate side effect because it was never originally designed as that kind of exam, and yet it's kind of turned into that. And then, uh, so you took that um, just like before, after your preclinical years, uh, one and two. Yeah, and that's correct. Did all, mm-hmm. and then, uh, like most, probably just had to take step two afterwards. Yep. Uh, yeah, it was. I mean, the, the curriculum is what most people now would. Then it was sort of, you know, very systems based. It was like the newest thing. Um, but nowadays that's what I think many schools, uh, now systems based is sort of on its way out and people are looking at things like symptom based or presentation based, but basically the first year was hardcore basic science, anatomy, histology. Um, second year was pathology, uh, and immunology and so forth, but with a focus on, you know, each organ system as you took it, then you took step one. Then you did a year of clerkships. Uh, then you took step two. It was just called step two then because there was no CS. Yeah. Um, and then step three was like people didn't even think about it. You go, you do your internship. And it's like, oh, I get a day off. Thank goodness I get to take a test. Um, you know, it wasn't it wasn't a big deal. Right. And and to a certain extent, I guess it is. Uh, it still kind of follows that uh, kind of progression. Um, uh-huh. In terms of the the importance attached uh, to things, but um, I guess in in your uh, academic history, aside from uh, the steps, um, do you have any test taking faux pas that uh, stick out in your mind, and uh, what did you learn from them? Oh, I I got two I can share. All right, uh, one is actually my second year of med school. Let's just say I did really poorly on an OBGYN exam. <laughs> okay. Uh, and uh, I, I was in good company because more than half the class did poorly. Um, but I knew going into the test why. I, it was like it wasn't I was expecting to do poorly, but I wasn't surprised. It was one of those experiences where I saw yeah. the test and thought, oh, okay, this is bad. Um, but the reason really had to do with motivation that the the way the course was and who the instructors were and their personality, it really affected the class. There was, um, uh, this was also unusual at the time. The class was more than half women, uh, which for that time was sort of like a, a big deal. Yeah. Uh, 
socially speaking, for you know, from the the uh, demographic. Yeah, from a demographic phenomenon point yeah. of view, where yeah. most med schools were, you know, maybe a third women. This was, you know, Stony Brook was actually the first school in the country to get above fifty percent, hmm. uh, and my class was one of those classes. So, but the faculty were all male. And they had a very uh, masculine approach to talking about OBGYN. Uh, and it really turned a lot of people off. And there was a lot of dissent and dissatisfaction. Um, and so much so that it affected your ability to even want to study that, that topic. And I, it really affected the performance. It was, it was almost a shock to me how impactful that was. I wish I could say that uh, your that experience is not an analogous one that uh, I think many people have gone through undergraduate or even graduate medical education could express or remember. But absolutely. Uh, so I guess what would you what did you learn from that experience that when you're a faculty member, you were not going to contribute to a culture of low morale and be sensitive to that or? Well, I learned two things interesting. One, I'm not sure I'm not sure any of the faculty wanted me to learn this, but I learned that the grade didn't matter to me anymore. You know, it was wasn't great that I did poorly on the exam, but it didn't mean anything about who I was. And now, you know, years later having been a dean of students, I see that all the time, a student who who does poorly on a test. And they come into the office and they're like, I don't know if I should be a doctor. I don't know why. Maybe I shouldn't be in med school. And they really have a lot of self-doubt. And I say, you know, it's a grade. It's not you. You're, you're who you are. The exam is who it is or what it is. And at some point, you stop getting exams. And you need to make the transition where you're judging the quality of your work based on what you think is quality work, not based on a bunch of multiple choice exams. Now, admittedly, you still have to do well on the exam to get, you know, for certain things like, as we mentioned, residency interviews and things like that. So real life intrudes. And so that was the other part of the lesson is like, just because I don't like the professors, I still need to find a way to motivate myself uh, to to get this difficult material under my belt. Yeah. So there's the first. What about the second? second? So the second was the neurology boards. Okay. Um, and uh, another high, probably the second highest stakes uh, for, for you it, or yeah, any, and, anyone in their career. And it, at that, now we have what's called maintenance of certification, which means every 10 years you, you retake your boards to show you still are qualified in that specialty. But at that time it was like, oh, it's like this is the last set of tests I'll have to take. Um, <laughs> And the neurology boards uh, has a written component and an oral component. Does it still? Uh, for the maintenance of certification, it doesn't. I yeah. don't know if they still make them do the oral on the first time, though. The, the oral exam, I, that was an experience in itself. Yes, uh, I, I had to do mine uh, for OBGYN last year, and it's a whole different ballgame. Yeah. Oh, the, the way the neurology uh, organization sets it up is the exam is given once a year in a different city. Right. And I was just lucky that the year I took it, it was in New York where, where oh, I live. Yeah. So but still, I could I felt for some of the people from out of town because they would they would send you to a hospital for one part of the exam and then they'd send you to another hospital. So we had people who were in downtown Manhattan for the first part of their exam. And then they had to get uptown to the west side to Columbia to, you know, the next part. And it's like, really? You know, they're, if they get stuck on a subway 
they could miss their exam. How stressful is that? And they, for my, um, there were, there's a, there's a paper case piece and there was a discussion piece. And then there was a patient, a live patient component. So my live patient, they gave me a gentleman who only spoke Spanish Hmm. as the patient. Um, and then I had some high school Spanish, but I was able to determine that he was demented. So here I am with high school Spanish trying to remember how to do a dementia exam. The only thing that saved me is my two examiners were from somewhere in the Midwest. They didn't know any Spanish at all. So they had no clue what I was asking. <laughs> so I got through that and I, I remember walking home and thinking, if I didn't pass this, and they give me a chance to have my teeth pulled instead of taking it over. It's just a question of how many teeth. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I passed. So that, that was the problem. But, but the written part caught me by surprise. So I thought I was well prepared. And I remember, you know, starting the exam and getting to a question. And it was one of, it was, seemed like a very straightforward question. You know, I had a case and it said, well, which, is, which of the following is the appropriate treatment in this case? And there were three choices that were clearly wrong. But the other two choices, I'm looking at them and I'm thinking, just last week, I read an editorial that said, we can't decide which of these two choices is better. So (laughs) neurology journals don't know the answer to this question. How am I supposed to know the answer to this question? And there were a lot of questions that felt like that. But the other thing that I learned from that exam, uh, the neurology, and I did not pass my first time on the neurology written exam. What they do that is should they, be encouraging. Uh, oh yeah, eventually. But here's another thing: no one's ever asked me how many times did you take the neurology written exam. It's like it hasn't come up as far as I know. Um, but after yeah. that, they send you a feedback report, and it's not you know it's not the questions, it's not the sure. answers you missed or anything like that. It's a very telegraphic sort of list. Of, you missed a question that was on something related to this topic, and. And it was just a list of all the, those topics. And I realized that although it didn't tell me what I got wrong, there were a couple like probably could say, oh, yeah, I remember that question. That was the one from the journal. Um, but most of them, I, there was enough info there that I realized, well, in studying for my retake, I'm going to go research this topic and learn everything I can about this you know, five-sentence thing that they provided and when I went back to take the test the next time, plus I studied all the other stuff I knew would be on it, um, then I really felt prepared and I, and I was much I still saw questions that I thought, oh, this is crazy. There's no right answer to this. But for the most part, I felt much more confident then. Well, thanks for sharing that. Like most people don't like to share their failures, uh, but I will tell you because they tend to be pretty common amongst all the faculty and, you know, even people who are involved in test prep don't always have a perfect record, Mm -hmm. right? And here you are uh, being able to look back on this and doing things to improve people's performance and and test-taking abilities uh, at Kaplan. So thanks. I appreciate that. What about this one? So we focused on the negative. What about the most, what was the best test-taking experience you had and why? (laughs) Let's see. The well, actually, the in some ways that oral exam, although it was painful at the time, um, it really did make me feel when I walked out of there, especially after I heard I passed. Because uh, you always wonder. You, th- there was actually a study done on internal medicine back when they had oral exams, and they discovered that 
the thing that correlated most with the score on their oral exams was who the examiner was, not who the, not who the student was. Ah. Um, so that was one of their reasons for getting rid of. So there was always some doubt as to like, you don't really know what kind of score you're going to get. But after having passed it and looking back on that experience, um, it really also made me feel like the faculty that I was interacting with on that exam that I was that much closer to being one of them. And in terms of thinking, if I was in their shoes, what questions would I have asked the examinee? And, you know, what kind of response would I have looked for? And it sort of was sort of an interesting little mind game to, to take that switch and, and think about being on the other side of, of the test. And, you know, that's uh, uh, one of the taglines we've used as a platform has been uh, learn to think like a question writer. Um, I think when you do take more of a step back um, or a, a kind of like a, a meta overview of, of, of the process, um, it, it can help you, I guess, hone your study skills if you can think what makes a good question. Um, you might be able to extract from a paragraph uh, what sort of content you need to remember. At least that's uh, kind of like the argument I would I would make, and it's been my own uh, sort of experience uh, throughout medical uh, education. But um, that's uh, yeah, that's that's fascinating too. I I don't want to take too much more of your time, um, but that particular topic, the you know putting yourself into the mind of an examiner. Um, going over item and analysis, even talking about the history of board exams in general, I think uh, would be excellent topics if you'd be willing to come back. Sure. Um, but yeah, I'd be happy to. But before we go, what I'd like to know is why did you get involved with Kaplan? Oh, that was an accident. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> I, I was, so my, my career trajectory was sort of interesting. I was... Um, when I was at Einstein, which is where I spent almost 19 years, um, I was doing neurology. I was seeing patients with residents in a clinic. I was teaching neurology. I was teaching neuroscience, neuroanatomy. Um, but most of what my time was uh, more computer-based education. And uh, I was helping faculty figure out how to use teaching tools. I was teaching students what they'd need to know as doctors about technology um, I got involved with the, the development of the Clinical Skills Center. Um, so I was sort of like doing lots of different things. But looking at how my career would advance, uh, I had gotten to the point where I was an assistant dean. And so the next step, obvious step, is to become an associate dean somewhere. And I was interested in professionalism issues. Um, that, that I think is still going to be sort of the next big hurdle in terms of assessment and how an NBME has been looking at this for a while. How do you assess who's professional and, and program directors want to know who's professional? Uh, so the idea of uh, becoming a Dean of students was attractive. Um, very interesting, challenging work. Um, but I was no longer doing neurology. In fact, if anything, I was doing psychiatry um, and uh, I was doing much less uh, with technology and almost no teaching at that point, huh. uh, just because the, the job was so demanding. Um, so it wasn't really where my skills were. I wasn't putting my best skills to use. So I started looking around for something else to do. Um, and that was right around the time that uh, the, the Affordable Care Act 
was really putting pressure on hospitals to computerize so that they could get a better handle on how they were providing patient care. And so I thought, oh, well, this is the time to actually maybe shift away from medical education to clinical informatics. And I started looking for hospital administration jobs. And for whatever reason, this position I'm in now was advertised as a chief medical officer, which in my yeah. mind meant someone who works in a hospital. Yeah. Um, so I looked at the, the it didn't say what company, but I'm reading the, the advertisement and I'm thinking, let's see, 2,000 questions? It's like, who could that be? You know, and this is an education job, and maybe I'm not done with education. So I decided to uh, go on the interview. Um, and really, prior to that, I'll admit that I was uh, like a lot of faculty in terms of biased against test prep. It's like, who, who are these test prep people coming in thinking they can teach people to be doctors? And the reality is that that's, I discovered that's number one, not really what test prep is about. It's about leveling the playing field for what's an increasingly complicated residency process. Um, and number two, uh, that the people who were doing it were very much like the faculty I worked with. They cared about the students. They cared about helping people succeed. And that was really the prime motivation. And I thought, oh, I, I could do this. And so I, I feel like I'm a dean of education only at a private company. And, and it's been fun ever, ever since I got here. Ah, yeah, I bet. Uh, well, uh, next time we should discuss more about what you do for Kaplan and Kaplan itself. But uh, thank you so much for your time. And I, I look forward to continuing these discussions. Sure. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And thanks to Sam and Alex from Magic Man for letting us use the track Out of Mind off their 2014 album Before the Waves, which GQ described as 12 tracks of alt joy. To hear more, check them out at magicmanmusic.com or follow them on facebook.com slash magicmanmusic. As always, thanks for listening and sharing Inside the Boards with your friends. Inside the Boards is not affiliated with the United States Medical Licensing Examination, Comprehensive Osteopathic Medical Licensing Examination, National Board of Medical Examiners, National Board of Osteopathic Medical Examiners, or any other licensing or examination body. All exam names or other trademarks are the property of the respective trademark owners. Content discussed during this program is the property of inside the boards or the attributed owner and may not be reproduced without permission from the appropriate entity. Inside the boards fully adheres to the respective policies on irregular behavior outlined by the aforementioned credentialing bodies. All content discussed is for educational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice.